This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is, therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And special offer to Skaboom listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash Skaboom. That's betterhelp.com slash Skaboom. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Black Day in July Motor City Madness Has touched the countryside And through the smoke and cinders You can hear it far and wide The doors are quickly bolted And the children locked inside Black Day in July Black Day in July And the soul of Motor City Is bared across the land As the book of law and order is taken in the hands of the sons of the fathers who were carried to this land. Black Day in July, Black Day in July, in the streets of Motor City there's a deathly silent sound, and the body of a dead youth lies stretched upon the ground. Upon the filthy pavements, no reason can be found. Black day in July, black day in July. Motor city madness has touched. In Detroit, uh, we had this very violent police squad known as the Big Four. Uh, I have been harassed by them so many times, I can't even count. Basically, I don't know anyone uh, who's black in the city who hadn't been harassed by them in the 70s and 80s. 90s. They're, uh, they're basically the reason why the rebellion happened in 1967 in Detroit. That's John Bunkley. John is the lead singer for Gangster Fun from Detroit. The band's story, as one of the original bands that helped to popularize a uniquely American version of ska, is featured in my book Ska Boom. The big four that John mentions were four-man police units that roamed the streets of black neighborhoods in Detroit during the 60s and 70s, searching for bars to raid and prostitutes to arrest. These units frequently stopped black men who were driving or walking and verbally degraded them calling them boy and the n-word, questioning them on who they were and where they were going. More often than not, they were walking or driving in their own neighborhoods. Most of the time, 
Black residents were asked to produce identification, and having suffered their requisite share of humiliation, were allowed to proceed on their way. But if they could not produce proper identification, this could lead to arrest or worse. The constant police harassment led to a citizen's rebellion in the summer of 1967. The Rise Up Detroit website details the events leading up to the rebellion that John references. Here's Ron Scott, who described a childhood encounter he had with the Detroit Police Department as a young man in the early 60s. Well, when I was, uh, I mean, if you, ref I mean, as I think about the situation when I was about 12, 13 years old, there was a crackdown on um, crime in the city. Uh, this was uh, roughly about 1959, 1960. And the um, then mayor, uh, Louis Mariani, had uh, stated that they wanted a, um, a crackdown on crime, and this crackdown took place totally in the black community. Uh, the assumption being that there was no crime anywhere else. And um, I remember on one occasion, I was walking down the street with my uncle, and the um, cops came up, uh, stopped us, and uh, told us, um, you know, that we were walking down the street and they wanted to, you know, talk to us. So they got out of the car, came over to us, and, um, you know, which, which, they were talking to my uncle, asking him, you know, where he was going, what he was doing in that neighborhood. We were half a block from my house. And as he was explaining that, um, I just uh, generally asked him, I said, well, you know, why, why are you asking us all of this? And... Uh, so one of the cops said to me, well, just shut up and don't even blow your breath in my face, you know. And then to me as a 13-year-old, I, you know, I didn't really, this was like, though I knew about what was happening with the cops before, it was like the first confrontation I had really personally ever had with them. And, uh, you know, because in school in those days, the, uh, you were told the uh, police officers were your friend and that these were the guys who kept you from getting hit by cars and, you know, came and rescued your dog and all that kind of stuff. And I felt that for the first time on a personal level at that time that these guys could actually kill you. And, um, and you know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't so much frightening. It was a combination of fear and anger. I mean, and I just... I mean, I guess somewhere deep down inside of me, I remember that. Uh, I didn't go around at that time uh, with a vendetta against the cops. But I would suspect, as friends of mine that I knew had had similar things happen to them, and if you talk to other people in Detroit or from Detroit at that particular time, a lot of specifically black men will go back to that era if, if, if they remember that period and will point to that as being one of the things that they remember very explicitly. The Detroit Free Press surveyed the black residents of the city in the late 60s, right before the rebellion, and asked them what the number one problem the community faced was. The number one issue? Constant police harassment and brutality. Because of its three-shift industrial culture built around car factories, Detroit had illegal after-hours bars that catered to second-shift workers. While state laws mandated that bars close at 2 a.m., second shift workers and people who wanted to drink after 2 frequented after-hours bars locally referred to as blind pigs. Because they were illegal, the Detroit police regularly raided them 
and customers were well aware of the risks they faced by drinking in these establishments. Early on Sunday morning, July 23, 1967, over 80 people were celebrating the return of two GIs from Vietnam at a blind pig on Detroit's west side. When police raided the bar just before 4 a.m., they had no reason to expect any exceptional outcome. However, on this particular night, at this particular time, the police lacked the power to quell what became a breakdown of black people's willingness to tolerate their own powerlessness. Elliot Hall, a Detroit attorney, explained the role of the Detroit police in instigating the outbreak of the rebellion on the Rise Up Detroit website. Detroit at one time had probably the largest black home ownership percentage of any city, major city in the United States because of the wages played by the auto industry and, uh, and, the, uh, and the related auto industries. But still, what caused the rise? That's the, the big key. If you were making those kinds of wages, why would you uh, cause a disruption? It wasn't so much uh, a class thing in the city of Detroit. It was more my view because of the police department. It was triggered by a police department. It was a raid on a blind pig. Blind pig is an after-hours joint that was open after the bars closed. Bars was closed at 2 o'clock in the morning. There was a, a wide range of businesses that always occurred for many years in the city called Blind Pigs, a place where people could go after 2 in the morning, drink, and gamble. Well, one of these places were raided in the area of Claremont and around 12th Street. And a hundred, almost a hundred people were lined up outside in the street. They'd all been arrested. And the police department was there in force, arrest these folks. But they didn't have the arrest wagons or the paddy wagons where they would take the people downtown to it took them forever to get there. And as a result, all hell broke loose. Someone throw a, threw a brick that broke a window and folks joined in. And that was the beginning of the 1967 riot. It was more so because of the police handling of manners and the police history within the black community that caused that riot. When this riot took place, it was not because there was any dissension within the black community. It is, it is difficult for me to, to attach underlying problems that were slowly being resolved. Housing, jobs, uh, jobs were in pretty, pretty fair amount. Unemployment in Detroit was not that high. Uh, the school system was still in the late 60s, still operating fairly well. There was still the, the whole segregated piece of it that we discussed already in terms of black schools and white schools and black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, but that was slowly beginning to change. The Detroit Rebellion exploded into one of the deadliest and most destructive riots in American history, lasting five days and surpassing the scale of Detroit's 1943 race riot 24 years earlier. The 1967 Detroit riots were among the most violent and destructive riots in U.S. history. By the time the bloodshed, burning, and looting ended after five days, 43 people were dead, 1,200 were injured, nearly 1,400 buildings had been burned, and some 7,000 National Guard and U.S. Army troops had been called into service.
a similar scenario played out in metropolitan areas across America, where white flight reduced the tax base in formerly prosperous cities, causing urban blight, poverty, and racial discord. In mid-July 1967, the city of Newark, New Jersey, near where I live, also erupted in violence as black residents battled police following the beating of a black taxi driver, leaving 26 people dead. The opening music for this episode is Black Day in July by Canadian folk singer Gordon Lightfoot, who wrote and recorded the song, recounting the events of the Detroit Rebellion on his 1968 album, Did She Mention My Name? The song was subsequently banned by radio stations in 30 American states. As a young black man growing up in Detroit, John witnessed the trials and tribulations that Detroit has endured since the summer of 1967, and those dark experiences came out in many of the lyrics of Gangster Fun's earliest songs. As an example, give I'd Buy a Gun from the band's second album, Time Flies When You're Gangster Fun to Listen. You know I 
John and his bandmates were heavily influenced by two-tone and specifically bad manners. And there is a direct connection between the two bands in terms of their chaotic stage shows, a dark comedic take on life, as well as ample use of black humor. While Bad Manners is probably best known for their more lighthearted songs like Special Brew, their cover of Can Can, and Skinhead Love Affair, one of their most memorable songs may actually be Inner London Violence, the dark and mesmerizing song written shortly before the Brixton and Hackney riots of 1981 that convulsed London and led to similar uprisings in cities all across Britain. And if you just sing the lyrics to like Inner London Violence and replace the words to of London to many of the cities in America it will prove relevant. Like the, the what's the first four lines? It's like rude boy went in handsome hats, policemen knocking rat a tat tat, then board around the streets at night. They're not looking, but they find a fight. I say inner London violence. You could say, I say inner Detroit line violence. I say inner Chicago violence. I say inner DC violence. I could say inner Memphis violence. It's really, really a song that's, you know, national, international, about police and its brutality toward the citizens that it's supposed to protect and serve. So, Bad Manners got that one right. Though Bad Manners sing about police violence in their London neighborhood, as John notes, the song could be about any city anywhere in the world. Hi, I'm Mark Wasserman, and welcome to Two-Tone Legacy, a special audio documentary series of the Skaboom podcast that focuses on the stories behind 10 iconic songs that contribute to the enduring legacy of two-tone music and its ongoing impact on popular culture. signed to the label. They were more two-tone adjacent, but it was the band's inclusion in the dance craze film and on the soundtrack that endeared them to two-tone ska fans. That's how I was first introduced to them, their charismatic frontman Buster Blood Vessel, and to the song Inner London Violence, which was on their debut album Ska and B, released in 1980. Bad Manners was formed in 1976 while the members were students at Woodbury Down Comprehensive School in North London. They were a ragtag bunch of friends who reflected the diverse neighborhoods where they lived. Their early live shows in the pubs and clubs around North London created a cult following that enabled them to be signed by Magnet Records without even recording a demo tape for an undisclosed sum of money, known as Ska and B, which became the name of their first album released in 1980. Bad Manners members loved taking on new names and identities which endeared them to their fans. The band's lead singer Doug Trendle took the name Buster Blood Vessel from a character in the surreal Beatles movie Magical Mystery Tour. Other members included Louis Cook, who became Louis Alfonso after the famous ska legend Roland Alfonso. Harmonica player Alan Sayag became Winston Bazumis. Bassist David Farron was regimental before he became David Farron. Drummer Brian Tewitt became Chewitt, while saxophonist Andy Marson was Marcus Absent and Chris Kane was Crust. Keyboardist Martin Stewart, known for wearing a nun's habit live on stage, was Mr. Boggingong at one point. Between 1980 and 1983, the band spent 111 weeks in the UK pop charts 
and had 15 hit singles. Their time in the charts exceeded that of Little Richard, Fats Domino, The Moody Blues, Culture Club, and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Hits included Nini Na Na Nu Nu, Lip Up Fatty, Special Brew, Lorraine, Just a Feeling, Can Can, and Walking in the Sunshine, to name but a few. Each was accompanied by outrageous appearances on Top of the Pops and Saturday morning children's TV shows that endeared Buster and the band to the British public. But inner London violence has always stood out from the fun, wacky, and weird songs the band released and were best known for. It's a real outlier and suggests there was a deeper, more socially conscious side to the band. I had the unique opportunity to connect with Louis Alfonso, the original guitarist of Bad Manners, who provided some amazing insight and behind-the-scenes commentary on the story of inner London violence. Okay, so it's a song which was uh, quite prophetic in its way because it uh, was released about a year and a half before the Brixton and Hackney riots in London, and it is mentions police violence. And so it's a little bit like some other songs as well, and notably, something I noticed recently, how similar it is in its ideas to Guns of Brixton, mentioning uh, these kind of things, uh, quite a long time before these riots actually happened. Although, of course, they were to do with the ambience of violence which was around at the time. Now, our song, of course, was completely different from The Clash's song because we weren't it was uh, not a, uh, uh, a, a call to arms. It wasn't a, a request to go and fight. It turns out that not everyone in Bad Manners was on board with writing and performing a serious song. If one member of the band, Alan Sayag, had gotten his way, the memorable chorus would have been very different. But it did, however, kind of um, clash with our ethos because it was the first song that we'd called a serious song um, serious in our way not entirely serious but it was um, the subject was not kind of happy or anything like that and it did cause some uh, problems within the band concerning the title uh, our ethos was more a kind of apolitical, amoral theatre of the absurd and Alan Sag, the great Alan Sag, didn't like the title or the chorus in London Violence. He, did, he thought it didn't go well with our, uh, with our image. Uh, the rest of us, I think most of us, especially me, I, th- I liked it. I thought it was good. And um, so what we did was to, uh, to change the chorus from Inner London Violence to the opposite of that. So we had something called Little Blue Sour, Little Blue Flowers in the Suburbs, which would have sounded something like this. Something. Little Blue Flowers in the Suburbs Little Blue Flowers in the Suburbs, yeah. Uh, yes, that's not very good at all. So, <coughs> Alan's rebellion was crushed and we went back to Inner London Violence. The band's tenor sax player, Chris Kane, was the catalyst behind the origin of the song. Now, um, concerning the song itself, it kind of, uh, it was mostly written by the, the idea, the general idea, we wrote songs as a committee, someone would come in with some kind of chord structure and everyone would jib in, as it were. Chris came in with a nice saxophone line and 
some chords which he'd been listening, which I think in his head was probably some kind of cool jazz, something similar to a song which was around at the time called uh, Hard Work. song you remember it and that I think was what Chris had in his mind and he had it and so that's how I kind of started now of course from there we end up with Martin with his menacing nun's costume blood dripping from his mouth with this uh, kind of heavy metal organ beginning so that went quite a long, diff- uh, quite a long way from Chris's uh, idea, but it was his kind of a chord sequence at the beginning. Have a listen to "Hard Work" by jazz saxophonist John Handy to hear the original inspiration for the song. documenting their experience with violence, which could include the police, but also served as an antidote to boredom on a Friday night. I guess what we wanted to do at the beginning was to to kind of, um, not really to make, as I said, it's an amoral, apolitical song, and we're just writing about what violence is like in London, not um, uh, a call to it, not a call against it, and a couple of us were possibly, you know, football supporters maybe involved in minor skirmishes along the way and kind of knew what it was like. And at that time, fighting was kind of fun for us, for some of us, not all of the band, but for a lot of people in in, uh, growing up at our age, it was a way of uh, relaxing on a Friday night was to have a fight. And now you may think this strange as an American uh, audience thinking how violence can be fun, and I certainly don't think it is in any form now, but in those days, of course, the police did not have guns, nobody carried guns or knives or anything like that. People would just have a fight and it would stop, um, and with some bloodied noses and uh, nothing more than that. So there was a kind of... Um, innocence, shall I say, about violence in those days. Uh, so, if you can imagine it, we were trying to express the kind of the, also the enjoyment of violence. And so, the song starts with this master uh, with his organ, and this kind of feeling of menace and uh, bleakness. Uh, that kind of stuff. And building and this kind of uh, idea of uh, the uh, it's like two gangs facing off and the the mounting tension until the fight breaks out about 
four times faster than Chris um, had imagined it. Lewis also shared that the band took some inspiration from another North London-based ska band with an unforgettable saxophone player. Chris is a really good sax player, and um, we could say maybe there's a little hint of the night boat to Cairo about that uh, line. But I would, if you're going to copy something, go or copy the style of something, do it better. I would, I would argue Chris was a much better sax player than Lee Thompson. Hello, Lee. Um, although Lee, of course, had his own wonderful inventive style, but Chris was really technically a very, very good sax player indeed. And that's a, a really exciting beginning uh, to a song. And now for all you people who love to hear about how a song is written, Lewis breaks down inner London violence. Uh, now, I'm going to go through the, the, just the first verse and the, 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 up into the second verse a bit because there's some interesting things. Now, by where no, God. When I, when I sung this um, uh, line with Scarville UK, I found that very embarrassing to sing like that. If you want to call that in, um, in, in cultural appropriation, it's kind of what we might call cod Jamaican or Jim Davidson type um, kind of mimicking. Um, fortunately, Dougie didn't continue with that along that line. Um, and he hadn't quite found his Buster Blood Vessel persona yet. But in, and fortunately, in the song itself, uh, things get better. Uh, I would, uh, when I did sing that line, I tried to sing it in a, in a normal voice. So the next line is now that's quite good because that line is going to come back the rat tat 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 bit. Um, they bowl around the streets at night. They bowl around. Bowling is a kind of aggressive Cockney way of walking, looking for a fight. It's you bowl head, shoulders back, rolling, head back, shoulders back, kind of uh, aggressive walking, shall we? provocative walking. And you could get beaten up for bowling by the police. You could also get beaten up for being black. And so, um, yes, you may not be looking for it, but you're going to fight. Um, so that's the first verse and then there's the chorus Dougie's chorus excellent that's really uh, really good with a fantastic brass line behind it which is I don't know who invented that one of the Andy Marsden perhaps or Chris and so then you go to the second verse the lyrics I can't really remember but the what I find is impressive with the um when it comes back with the uh, the machine guns, right? Machine guns, bit exaggerated, but at the time I was thinking that's yeah, it's a bit I mean, exaggerated, but maybe it's a kind of future projection, like um, guns at Brixton, and yes, uh, so it's a kind of prophetic song in that way. Another little bit which comes in at the end of the second verse is something that we thought we just is this the greatest chord sequence ever invented. and so that in fact it's not very different from It's 
done. We, when you kind of invent that kind of thing, you think you, nobody's ever done those chords before, but um, we were very excited by it. Finally, Lewis notes that inner London violence was influenced more by a genre of music that may surprise you. The song is kind of owes more to Deep Purple than uh, the Scatterlights, really. Or it's kind of prog, you know, progressive. It progresses from one place to another and is portraying some kind of uh, some kind of uh, some kind of fight. And um, yeah, we have the, uh, the it's, uh, some fantastic uh, solos in it, and it's uh, been a staple, I guess. I hope they still play it as one of the last uh, songs of the uh, of the set. And it's uh, yeah, it's really great. up and, and uh, uh, goes off into the chaos and violence of the night. So there you have it, in London violence. I'm glad other people have liked it over the years. Paul Williams, author of You're Wondering Now, the specials from Conception to Reunion, who was a young rude boy in the early 80s, shared his memories of bad manners in the song. In the London violence is a wonderful track and I do believe it is probably uh, Everybody who likes bad manners and people, and some people that don't, but know of it, you know, uh, they, they, it's, it's the biggest tune, one of the big, one of the big bad manners tunes, especially live. Um, like with a lot of the two tone bands, live is the true experience of the two tone, of the two tone uh, feel, really. Um, everything sounds better live. And I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that a lot of these bands, all the two tone bands, are much better live than they were on record anyway. Uh, and that's been documented by other people as well. But, in the London Vines, um, also contains um, the ongoing social aspect, uh, lyrically, that the two-tone bands were capable of doing. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 the band, all the bands first released, like the Specials, Madness, Selector, and Bamans and stuff, um, are all very similar. They're all sort of very quite similar. And, uh, um, and, it fits perfectly with everything. Um, of course, lyrically, it's got the social aspects of things, um, getting caught, hanging around street corners, and no matter what happen, you know, happens, if you're not looking for a fight, you're going to find it, have police harassment. You know, we were... And, you know, this this did happen as kids. You know, young skinheads in gangs on street corners, we were, we were confront, uh, confronting the police for no reason whatsoever, you know, and then we weren't doing anything. And and, it, and, it's all, and, and because that happens, it resonates with you and stuff like that. Um, it's... Um, uh, and it's just, you know, it, it possesses so much danceability as well. As a live track, it's a really, really great live track. The driving brass, which were Bam Hans were, you know, uh, famous for, and, and things like that. And again, you know, I think the album also proves that although Bad Manners were slung into the sort of madness category, almost circusy, sort of like almost to an extent, um, you know, it was... Um, not too true, not true in any shape, way or form. And I think, um, you know, Batman's would have gone to be great recording artists throughout the career, I think. Uh, and, you know, and when you get to the album, gosh, it's, uh, you know, which is there for me is their finest moment, I think, the original band specifically. But uh, in the London Vines, I mean, you know, and it's it's a, a song that's covered a lot as well. So that, that tells its own story because it's, it's it's popular, it's a dance, a dance epic, really, uh, and stuff like that. 
and but there's a you know there was a lot more to bad manners than just the the the, the sort of like playfulness of Buster Blood Vessel and, and the antics on stage and things like that. Um, and sometimes I guess a little bit lost for bad manners. I think as I mentioned, you know they are great songsmiths uh, in their own right. Um, but uh, in the London van, especially on Scam B, you know, is probably one of the standout tracks for me um, and for many others. Um, it possesses everything. It's the perfect. It's the perfect tune, really, isn't it? Uh, a lot of the a lot of great tunes possess everything that this one's got. It's got, like I said, the the brass, the driving bass line. It's got everything. It's got absolutely everything. It's got the stops in it, the start restarts in it, which again is a very popular thing uh, with with good songs. Uh and 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 great social commentary. It is a top track. Unlike many of the other two-tone bands, Bad Manners made a commitment to regularly tour America in the late 80s and early 90s and those shows, which often included local American bands as openers, were instrumental in spreading the gospel of ska across America which led to the ska boom of the mid-90s. I saw Bad Manners for the first time at the Ritz in New York City during the summer of 1984. It's still one of the most fun nights of my life. After a long wait, the band finally came on at midnight and didn't finish playing until close to 2 a.m. By that time, my friends and I had missed the last bus home from Port Authority. Instead, we walked the streets of New York and killed time outside the Port Authority, which was a whole separate adventure in and of itself, until we could catch the 6 a.m. bus home to New Jersey. It was totally worth it and was a huge influence on me in starting Bigger Thomas, the first ska band from New Jersey. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Legacy of Two-Tone. I want to thank my co-producer and engineer Rob George for making me sound good, and to Louis Alfonso, John Bunkley, and Paul Williams for their contributions. My book, Ska Boom, is available from DeWolf Publishing at DeWolf.com, as well as Amazon. Thanks for listening, and take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.